You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Clintonmeyer. My guest for episode 92 is Steve Young, an electronic composer that plays under the name Head Flux. You're right now listening to his first major track, Music Is My Weapon, from 2007. Since then, he's released many individual tracks for use in dance establishments. He changed up his style, embracing slower tempos and more complicated textures around 2013. We'll be discussing a track called Equinosis from 2018's Mercurial EP, then Superluminal Sound from 2016 from the Soul Science album, then the title track from 2013's Wanderlust EP, and we'll conclude by listening to one of many collaborations he's done. The song is called Origins. It's from a 2018 album called Kin, credited to Head Flux and Alex Delfont. For more information, please see headflux.com. For more about this podcast, check out nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And if you enjoy what we're doing, please go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic to sign up for a small per-episode contribution. So I will have played a little of Music Is My Weapon during my introduction, 2007, one of your earlier works available on the In Retrospect We're going to jump pretty quickly to one of your newer things, Equinosis from the Mercurial EP 2018. Connect the dots, 2007 to now. We're going to be going back in time. You know, Music Is My Weapon, debut track. Uh, I'd been tinkering with music production for years before that, way back from the early days with Cubase on uh, an Amiga back in the early 90s. I was obsessed with trying to make music like what I was hearing in computer games. And then in the mid-90s, I started going to raves and clubs and so on and hearing a lot more club music. I was kind of this mixture of the more kind of urban breakbeat sound and the more kind of trancey, like Goa trance sound. I was hearing like both of those styles and they were both a big influence to me. And so I had this idea of psychedelic breaks where I was kind of combining these together. And Music Is My Weapon was the first one that I just finished and a lot of other DJs really liked it and started playing it. It got signed and it made quite a big splash, actually, for a first tune. It went out uh, really well. It got played on Radio 1 in the UK by Annie Nightingale. And yeah, it made a bit of a splash. So I got off to a good start with that track. All right. So then many years later, do you want to give us an intro to our first song before we hear it in full? Equinosis from the 2018 Mercurial EP. So much has happened between then and now. Um, Equinosis was started uh, just earlier this year in the springtime. A lot of learning about music and I really tried to put into that. So the the whole track was actually modeled on a sine wave. I tried to create this kind of like sine wave fractal where I was using sine waves in the sound design, but also in the composition of the song. One of the interesting things about Equinosis, when I started the track, I wanted to make it in a major key, which for electronic dance music is very, very rare. You know, it's almost all in minor key. And I started trying to write it in G major, but everything I did sounded cheesy and I just went down half a step to F-sharp major, which of course is all the black keys, and immediately melodies just started flowing from my fingertips. And uh, so it was kind of a lesson in just how much of a difference a semitone can make when you're creating music.
let's talk a little bit about the structure here. You're establishing an atmosphere for a good minute before the beat itself comes in. So very different from music is my weapon, which is obviously a club track and we're hitting it. No, this is a sort of, I wrote Zen garden is what, at least what it starts out. It even has the kind of down swirling sense that, you know, is reminiscent of that, you know, that's in the, every Japanese, it's a soothing. (laughs) (laughs) The track, as I say, was originally modeled on the sine wave. So I had this idea of building it on eight sections of eight bars And so it's 90 BPM. The kind of first section from the drop is very melodic. And then there's a point midway through the track where everything starts coming down. It's like, and there's a drum fill and then it goes into darkness. And this is representing the point in the wave where it goes under and it comes back. And there's this kind of symmetry. There's this like sine wave symmetry to the track. It almost kind of comes back to the end of the track almost sounds exactly like the beginning, just in terms of timbre. The intro sounds, I mean, that sound was made, originally I was just playing chords with a, an electric piano patch. I resampled that and then ran it through a granular processor and created the sounds that you hear in, in the intro. Yeah, and normally that high stuff would be the melody, you know, would be the foreground, but, you know, at least once and we get our first little rhythmic bits, it's really the rhythm is the star. The synth patch is just the wallpaper and it's really, the focus is just on all this really interesting stuff you've got going. You've established this nice Zen garden thing and and right at 21 seconds in, we have our first... That doesn't happen again until about 32 seconds in, presaging the fact that this is going to be a dance track eventually. I kind of think about atmospheric jungle noises. You know, it could have been little bird sounds or something. I was living in a rainforest in Hawaii at the time. So, you know, while I was writing that track, I was literally looking out my window at like, you know, bamboo and with constant sounds of like insects chirping and birds and stuff like day and night. So, you know, I found very much, you know, that the environment that you're in really affects the music. I mean, not just the natural environment, but even the things such as the color of the room that you're in can really play a part in the music that comes through you. Well, let's play where the full on beat comes in to just, Talk about the elements that are going on right there. So I like a lot how when you introduce a melody, it's not just one instrument. It's not just something going do, 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 do. Every note is coming from a different patch. You know, so it's all zigzagging from different places. How does that match up with being improvisational? Is it that you jam the melody with a single patch and then you go in later and like, no, oh, this would be more interesting if instead of those three notes in a row played with a single sound, I make each of them a different sound? I'll usually start by basically calibrating an instrument. So something like an electric piano, say, which played a big part in this, but it doesn't sound like I'm playing an electric piano because the first thing I did was I made the patch and then I played it, at which point it did sound like an electric piano, but then I resampled it and did the editing and the granular synthesis, the comping, you know, kind of pulling out all the bits that I like and putting them into place within the beat structure to create something that just, you know, that just resonates. And and to me, to my mind, it doesn't sound like someone just sitting playing an electric piano. I like to call it like harmonic modulation. So it's like, you can't really tell what kind of instrument it is or how it's being played, but the harmonics are always like changing in musically interesting ways. Yeah, let me play a little more here, just a few seconds later here. (laughs) 
So pretty close after that, it seems this throbbing bass thing is going to be a pretty important part of this going forward. But it's not a traditional bass line. It's just that as the song goes on, it kind of you hear more and more of these wah, 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 which it doesn't even have an attack on it. So it has to rely on the drums. We've already established the rhythm, and this is the sort of after effect that's going to come sort of more and more often in different places. I like to think of the beats as like the rocks and the bass is like the water that's kind of washing between the rocks, you know. And again, you know, I was living in Hawaii at the time next to the ocean with the ferocious sound of the ocean day and night, like hitting off the cliffs. And so it really kind of played into this track, you know. So, yeah, the bass is long sustained notes, which are modulated harmonically in a musical way rather than sort of played as you would imagine, like a bass player, like, you know, with an attack and stuff like that it's also very common what is it called in the dance world everything just stops for a second and then it just keeps going oh like th- those little silences at the end of the bar or whatever <laughs> yeah i'm not sure what you would call them like a drop you mean yes yes exactly but here they're micro drops they're little tiny drops it could even be it doesn't even have to even be at the end of the bar it could just be any place where we just have a an inhale before the next thing happens <laughs> Yeah, it can be powerful just as, you know, a few milliseconds of a gap, really just enough for you to emphasize the the next moment, you know, the drop that comes. Even in music is my weapon, you've got this very mechanical beat, but then it stops and goes, you know, it has a really classical big drum fill. And I think most of the songs we're talking about today have that somewhere in here. Let's throw in some actual acoustic symbols, you know, just that you would expect more of that. But no, it's just, it becomes a special little thing. The fact that it's so rare in here and then, you know, to have a traditional sounding element thrown in there. I like this combination of using layered heavy electronic drums for the actual like beat and the pulse of the track, but then using acoustic drum kits for fills and decoration and hi-hats and things like this. But yeah, the main kick and snare are usually either synthesized or consist of like several samples like layered together and compressed to get that heavy kind of punchy sound, which just works on the dance floor. Sure. With music as my weapon, though, like the way I was making music back then was very much reverse engineering. You know, I was hearing tracks in the club and then thinking about how I can recreate that sound. And so it was very kind of piecewise, you know, just like finding sounds and dragging them in and and sort of like going over them and making them sound good. But by the time I got to make an equinosis, I developed this whole audio alchemy approach to music production, which is a much more sophisticated way to write music and allows me to get a lot more subtlety and dynamic and human expression into the music rather than that kind of mechanical club music, you know? Sure. And just the endless layers, you know, sort of what justifies... This is not a super long song. This is the shortest one we're going to be talking about. It's five minutes something. But that every single stanza, you you know, you introduce some new layer of percussion or something like that. I want to play a bit. There's actually a little bit of reggae that comes in here. I'm like, what is this? This... That becomes, you know, another character that's entered here that I don't think was in here earlier, but it makes it a little extra funky. 
you know, in Equinosis, it's like you rightly say, it was one of the shortest tracks I've done. It was also actually one of the few layers in it compared to other tracks. Um, but I was using the same instruments, you know, the same sounds, like in a lot of different ways. And that's a, another way that my music has changed over the years. You know, it's like a, I used to just create hundreds of sounds. It's like you're just pulling in a synthesizer, making a sound, putting in the track, pulling in another synthesizer, making another sound, putting in the track. But now I'll actually just design instruments, like I'll design just like eight instruments and then I will play those and use those and edit just those rather than pulling in all these other things all the time, you know, and just I call it like building the band, you know, it's like I build a drum kit, I'll build a bass patch, I'll build a synth patch, I'll build a patch for chords, I'll build something for effects. And then I'll just use those and I won't keep going back and pulling more things in because that was a very inefficient way to work, you know, because I didn't, I was just figuring it out back then, you know. I almost think purely instrumental music like this with a lot of different arrangement tricks, I don't know, geometrically is the world, cinematically sometimes I think in terms of there's a little opening in the mid-range. Let's have some little kind of bouncy thing enter there and then it slips away. And, you know, that you can really think and have to compute how many dimensions you have here, right? You can go up and down in pitch. You can go up and down in tone. So we're going, wow, that the tone is increasing and decreasing. I mean, do you think in sort of spatial metaphors in that way? It's very easy when you're sitting with headphones of what's coming in at the top or the bottom or or slicing (laughs) through the middle. You know, I have a scientific background. I studied physics and maths. And so I come at it in a very scientific way. And as I say in the beginning, so I was coming at it from a very heady place of like calculating things and working things out. But then as the years went on, I wanted to get more of the heart into it, you know, more of the feeling as a musician playing an instrument. The Ableton Push controller, for example, which, you know, is a controller that allows you to completely turn Ableton into a musical instrument. Bringing that into it and this other way of working has allowed me to feel the music a lot more. And so a lot of these things that are coming out in Equinosis, you know, I'm not putting a lot of thought into them. I'm just playing my instruments. I'm playing my effects and I'm just seeing what comes out. And so it's a really different approach to working than what I used to do. But it's all about the polarities, you know. In music, you're always working with polarities, whether it's left, right, tone up, tone down, volume up, volume down, pitch up, pitch down. You know, everything has like two poles to it. And you're basically moving between poles all the time because all music, of course, is comes from the breath, you know, the in and out of the breath. Music is from the air, it's from the voice. It's all about the breath. So you're just working polarities. Any polarity you can create can be a source of musical expression. Let's see how that translates into a couple of really interesting sections just after this, around 246. <laughs> main beat goes away so we can have it focus on the little details into a giant tumble into you know really focusing on this throbbing bass here say a little bit about that kind of transition how you're moving the song forward yeah so that's the center point of the track so as i said earlier it was modeled on the sine wave and there's this idea that the beginning of the track there's this sense of like you know it's the first track i ever did in a major key you know it's like a happy feel to it it feels like you're going somewhere and then there's this, and then all the melody drops out and it just goes into bass, beats, and percussion, okay? So that's really an expression of the dark part of the wave, okay? The underside of the wave. So it's kind of, at that point, that's the middle of the track, and we're going down, and then it also switches from being a kind of 16th swing to being a 16th triplet groove at that point. 
And that allows me to get this real like wobble, like wop, 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 wop. Actually, I find the tempo 90 BPM, I find to be one of the absolute most rhythmically flexible tempos to work at. There's just so much you can do rhythmically at 90 BPM. It's a lot of fun. So I've done a lot of tracks at 90 BPM. <laughs> so you're not thinking in terms of dance floor anymore at this point, I assume. Well, I am. Yeah. I mean, it depends where you are in the world. People would dance to slower music or faster music. I mean, I lived in the U.S. for three years and the slower tempo stuff just goes down. You know, people absolutely love it. But then you come back to Europe and you play stuff at a slower tempo and they just kind of stand around not quite knowing what to do with themselves because they're used to hearing trance and drum and bass and all this kind of thing. So the different parts of the world, people dance differently to different tempos and so on. But, you know, I like to write at, at any tempo, but certainly around 90 and 100, there's a really strong resonance there for me. I, I really enjoy it. So it seems like you're using effects sometimes to add an overall wash. Let me add what I wrote down is the flange section. This is just another 15 seconds or so after that. So it's that triplet thing you were talking about, but it has this upward tonal, I assume it's just a flange effect. I'm not sure if it was a flanger or maybe just the bass modulation. So with the bass, you know, I have like eight controls, which, you know, all control different harmonic properties of the patch. And then so like with each of those, I'm like moving them over time. I don't think I just chucked a flanger on it, but that's kind of the effect that comes out. These are like the eight dimensions of the instrument I'm then expressing over time. And I'm trying to get as much out of it as I can. I was referring to the higher frequency stuff that was playing at the same time as the bass, but that very well could just be part of the effect that you put on the bass, that it's generating these higher harmonics and doing things with them. I'm not totally sure. It might have been an effect on the percussion. Right. So you got this massive sweep up at around 3.30 there, and there's kind of a fake out. So it seemed like, okay, we're going to wash up and then we're going to have the quiet part again. No, no. And that lasts about like one beat. And then, oh, let's just have everything come back in. So this represents, if you imagine the sine wave, so this represents the sort of three quarters of the way through the sine wave when it's now turning back towards the start. So the elements that came in at the beginning of the track are now starting to come back in because you're kind of like getting out of the low point of the wave and moving back towards the start of the wave. So Yep, and then one more place, the transition back to the actually peaceful part. The reverb has been cranked up a little bit. I wrote down sounds of the night, sort of like the bird atmospheres from the beginning, but we've not just come out at the end the same way we were at the beginning. Something has been transformed. So the journey transforms you. I mean, I guess the main difference between that outro and the intro is the outro has the bass in it, you know, it has the same kind of chords and sort of birdy, like jungly noises of the intro, but it also has the bass, you know, adding to it there. Sure. And then let's just talk about the very end. So you got this little swish to get out of it. (laughs) 
Yeah, so quite a long, especially at that very end where it's just taking off into the stratosphere there. Just focusing on like that last little sound, that like what is producing that? It all comes from that electric piano patch. I mean, to give you an idea of like how an electric piano ends up sounding like that, it was going through, you know, I'm playing chords and melodies, recording it all, and then reversing it. Okay, so I want to then reverse it. It starts to sound a bit more alien, a bit more techy than a traditional electric piano. But then running it through a granular processor, which is basically dividing it up into little grains, so you can hear that like it's like... Yeah, th- those are the grains, and, and I'm changing the size of the grains because that's another polarity. I can play the grain size and add kind of musical character by playing the grain size. That's just one of the consistently most fascinating alien parts of your music because if I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking as if I was playing it on a real instrument and what am I going to do? You know, I could do that maybe on a kazoo or something, you know, something that you could really, with your mouth... <laughs> make it make that but <laughs> yeah. to approximate that with a a violin or something like that you know you've got tremolos you've got certain things that can approximate parts of that but you're not going to be able to change as many of those eight dimensions at a time on any regular instrument there's obviously lots of differences between a natural instrument and an electronic instrument but it's trying to find that point in the middle where like you can actually play an electronic patch as well and as with the degree of subtlety that you can a real instrument. And that's always been the challenge of electronic music is, you know, how do we get more humanness into it? And that really became just an obsession of mine, you know, especially after starting the audio alchemy stuff, teaching people. I find that like the students that were coming to me tended to be on a spectrum, whereas some were very well trained in a musical instrument, but weren't comfortable with music production and computers and so on. But they needed to learn about that in order to record their music and get it out to the world. And then there were others who were very kind of techie, geeky people who could reverse engineer music on a computer because they knew about computers and maths, but they'd never played an instrument in their lives, so they were having trouble with the human part. So we were trying to bridge that gap, you know, and help the more techie people become more expressive like the musicians and then help the musicians become more techie. Let's move to the second song. We wanted something off of your last full EP, Soul Science 2016. I had picked Superluminal Sound off of that. This is a seven and a half minute thing. Do you want to say a little more about that project and this song in particular before folks hear it? Yeah, that was a real joy to make that tune. One of the interesting things about it is that it uses a harmonic BPM. So the track is in the key of C, but it's in a 432 tuning and it's at 120 BPM. And, And what that means is that the BPM, the frequency of the beats per minute, is actually in the key of C. And so what happens when you have your BPM is actually harmonic with your bass, okay? So the lowest bass frequency of C is 32 hertz. If you then go down four octaves from that, you get 120 BPM. And so that property of the track enabled me to do all this crazy glitching with the bass because the waves of the bass fit perfectly in between the beats. Like The waves don't get cut off, they fit perfectly in between the beats. That was kind of the purpose of that. I wanted to make this a track that was like harmonically perfect from the rhythm layer up through into the bass and all the harmonies like all the way up the spectrum.
All right, so despite the fact that we're back at 120 and it seems like a dance tune, this almost seems like a ballad, at least like a rap ballad. I expect somebody to go, yeah, yeah, you know, to start start in, especially the beginning, and, and you've got this little... You know, these little nice melodic things, which is an interesting mix to have that little electric piano-ish melody with... I had to come up with some image to write down. I wrote down insect farting, but these little <laughs> these little grinding noises <laughs> that are pleasant. <laughs> That's actually the bass, you know. So if you play it in key, it might sound like, but if you play it four octaves down, which is like four times slower, and it starts to sound like a pulse, like. And so because I had this harmonic BPM 432 tuning, I was able to play my bass line three octaves down and it would create this kind of like, which is like in time with the rhythm. And so I could basically play the bass over like an eight octave range and get all these crazy effects out of it and for it always to be in sync with the beat. That track really just flowed out, you know, I mean, it's kind of a mystery (laughs) to me how I made it actually. But yeah, I just started with that melody and took it from there. Yeah, and then there's some interesting tonal choices in this song. Just the fact that you've kind of got this snap-based drums. Like, that's what makes me think that it's kind of like an R&B ballad. And then you've got these really analog-sounding string sounds that you're using as you know, for your transition instruments. This It's not even pretending to sound like strings. Like, it's sounding like 80s synth strings. Any sort of thought about how you develop the sound palette for this to mix those analog and I was going to say the doodla, doodla, you know, the, the main high harmonic thing sounds a little more at least late 80s, like a different a different part of the 80s. It's a different era. I was definitely paying homage to, you know, some of the sounds a bit later in the track are very kind of like computer game. The pads, like you're saying, yeah, very reminiscent of that kind of 80s uh, analog pad sound. Yeah, I think there was a lot coming up from my from my youth during that track. Yeah. Yeah, well, and you've also got this punctuated sound. That, you know, that just sits there. That now we're starting a new four measure, eight measure, whatever it is, another little section that I was brought to mind of Pink Floyd's metal, like that long Doctor Who-ish, where it has that resonance, reverbed thing that just punctuates the beginning of... <laughs> Absolutely. I, you know, I listened to that album so much when I was younger, you know, and I, although that wasn't consciously inspired, I, you know, probably was a big part of it. I listened to a lot of Pink Floyd. Well, yeah, certainly just talking about that song, the, what makes it sound like Doctor Who to me, that don't, 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 you know, that bass, like you can hear that kind of mechanical pattern is just proto techno, frankly. <laughs> it does not sound like a person playing. I really went to town with this track, actually, you know, with the melodies and stuff like that. And it was going to be the title track of the album. Originally, the album was going to be called Superluminal Sound after that track. And then the name Soul Science kind of came along. Yeah, it's very different to anything I've done, you know, and kind of a mystery. It's 120. It could have a very straight dance tempo. But you throw in, like around two minutes in, you start doing more of this, you know, this kind of syncopated thing it starts like a halftime rhythm you know just like 60 bpm essentially and then about two minutes in into this kind of which is still it's like a 60 bpm like a stepping rhythm i forget what they're called there is a name for it and then it goes into a double time it goes into the 120 bpm like break beat and then there's a breakdown then when it comes in after the breakdown it, it changes again and what i did that time was i really shifted the snare drum 
out of the two and four because the snare drum's always on the two and four. But after the break, I decided to try and make a beat where the snare drum was coming in like later instead of being on the two and four, which is obviously another common thing in music. Let's hear the breakdown. I think this is what you're talking about. So at least around 2.30, I wrote down that just, you know, a whole new palette of sounds seems to like it's entered here. These rapid fire, these rolling noises, knuckle cracking with sort of a, a Japanese koto yeah, yeah, there is something that sounds like a koto, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, I don't know if that was my intention. I mean, that's just a synthesized sound that I made, but... Uh, sure. I'm just trying to, like, how can I remember what this part is? So I was, like, trying to come up. What does it sound roughly like? <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. It's spot on, yeah. And speaking of, as you were talking about after this breakdown, you've got... I wrote, the phone ringing is the new, <laughs> is the new element. Three and a half <laughs> minutes in. Let's hear a little bit of that. Yeah, that you get the do 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 You know, we have a nice melodic synthy thing and then punctuate it with that. Sounds like a phone ring to me. I don't know. I guess it depends where your ringtone is. <laughs> I think that sounds like a flute. Sure, a trilled flute. A trilled flute, yeah, yeah. And then you've got a nice little drum break. Route 355 is where we get these 8-bit sounds that go very high. While we're playing that, throwing that in like a thumb pop, <laughs> that just makes me laugh. You know, I can't even remember how I came up with that. I think that I'd made a bunch of recordings, the finger snaps and some other like mouth noises and things like that and made a drum kit. And, you know, it just, it was there, you know, as I say, I build the instruments and then write the songs with those instruments. Around five and a half minutes, sounds like there's an actual solo instrument coming in as opposed to just a collage of stuff. As I play it back, it does sound more ensemble-like than solo than I was thinking, but I wrote Herbie Hancock on steroids. <laughs> I was probably on something, but it wasn't steroids. <laughs> <laughs> what you're referring to as 8-bit, yeah, it's square waves. There's a lot of the early computer stuff that was made with square waves because a square wave is essentially just on-off, 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 easy to generate for these old computers. They have this kind of hollow sound, but when you play them high up, I, I feel like they have this really kind of nostalgic Grown up in the 80s, like playing arcade games and, you know, computer games and all that, they, they really have this uh, nostalgic quality to them. I wanted to do it in a, you know, tasteful way, you know, tasteful for me anyway, rather than just a complete chip tune track, you know, <laughs> but uh, try to do it in a kind of nice uh, sort of tasteful way with like modern like bass music sounds and that kind of thing. And there's a rhythmic thing I really like. These open hi-hat steps that provides this nice little punctuation there. Yeah, so that's the drop I was talking about where I moved the snare out of its regular two and four position. Yeah, and, and using the hi-hats. Yeah, it's like the snare's on the two and, is it? On the two and, I think. Again, just trying to break out of the usual patterns. You know, I got jaded with just the dance music because for all the touring and just hearing the same 
patterns all the time. Everybody just making tracks with the same patterns, the same kick drum patterns, the same this. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to make like original music that doesn't adhere to any particular formula, but is just written to be interesting, you know? Yep. Moving toward the end of the song, let's hear this big wash. So I thought it was interesting, you know, that you get this wash and then at the beginning of the measure there, there's no one on the kick drum, that there's enough going on that it doesn't feel like you've fallen over something. (laughs) The fact that we don't have the kick drum, you know, the kick drum is around that, but it can take a breath there on the one, strangely. That's an old trick, actually. You'll you'll probably find that in a lot of my tracks. There's like probably just one moment in the track when I take out the kick drum on the one and let it kind of glide over to the snare drum. I quite enjoy doing that. I always like talking about the very ends of songs, how you you wrap this up. Yeah, so sort of a variation off of the whole song is taking off in a rocket and going away, you know. <laughs> but the fact that it's it's you know that this is so bass defined as you were as you were describing the song in the first place that it's really that mm-hmm. thing that turns into the final sweep. Compared to the earlier music I was doing, such as "Music Is My Weapon," which was designed straight up for DJ mixing, you know, because I was a DJ before I was a producer, so you know, just like with techno and trance and and all these tracks, you know, they're designed for DJs to mix them with other tunes. But when I started making more uh, original music at all kinds of different tempos and speeds with different beats, I needed ways of mixing them that weren't reliant on just having this like machine groove at the beginning and the end of the tune. One of the most effective ways of mixing something out is actually just where the end rises up. So when your other track is mixing in, you have this nice kind of like pitch rising sound so you don't have to worry too much about the pitches clashing and things like this because the pitch is kind of rising towards the end of the track. It makes it very easy to mix with other tracks and and things like that. So you'll see a lot of my tracks have these kind of like endings that kind of like rise up or just like wash out and uh, it makes them really good for mixing with anything you want to mix with them, you know? Well, it also just seems a variation off of a lot of the transitions that you make between sections that I assume are often backward symbols or something that you've got a lot of, like, we're about to get to the new section, so let's have it go, you know, to have some kind of crescendo noise that wasn't necessarily part of the palette before, but has been introduced just to get us over the hill, whether it's the strings or a symbol or something else. I don't really use reverse symbols all that much anymore, but that's a common technique. But more often now, what I'll, I'll do for those kind of transitions is I'll, I'll look to what's happening and then just start turning up all various controls. You know, it could be the tone, it could be the pitch, it could be the amount of reverb, the amount of delay. You know, all of it together all starts rising. So you're building and building in intensity. And sometimes you can throw in some white noise there, such as like a cymbal. But I, I prefer to work with actual white noise rather than cymbal samples. It makes things bright, you know, it's called white noise, you know, it whites everything out, you know, whereas all the melodies are very colorful, white noise kind of like makes it all which kind of adds an intensity, and especially when it then drops out and all the colorful sounds come back in, you know, there's a nice kind of contrast. I also like how 
I know in the first song, Equinosis, you did it a couple times. I'm not sure in this song if I'm finding it in my notes, but where something new is going to happen in the next section. You're going to introduce some extra percussive element. So for the transition, instead of just having a white noise sweep or something like that, you introduce a little bit of that. So let's just kind of get the new element in there a measure or two early. And then the next section is going to be focused on that new sound. It's just a way of gradually introducing things and not making it a surprise. Yeah, that's it. If you're going to be bringing in a, a new element, I like to create sort of like echoes of it that are coming your way so that you're just getting like little tasters of the frequencies that are about to come before the full expression actually hits you. Speaking of that, let's transition to the third song, Wanderlust, the title track from the 2015 EP. This has some interesting characters, I, I would say, in it, maybe because it's a little simpler than the previous ones. I'm not sure. I, I guess we'll hear Give a little introduction to this project and this song before folks hear it, and then we'll talk more. So Wonderlust was actually the first track that I did at a slower tempo. You know, up until that point in my life, I'd been focusing on music really in the 130 BPM to 140 BPM range, which was very clubby, very trancey sort of tempo. You know, I did like 40 or so tracks, you know, all in that tempo range. And eventually I came to realize that I was really limiting myself by just arbitrarily sticking to this narrow range of tempo. And so I started a track at 100 BPM and Wanderlust, it took probably about 18 months, of course, not constant daily work, but 18 months from beginning to end of the project. It went through so many revisions. When it went out there, I mean, it was so well received and it really changed my life. I mean, I like to talk about the transformational power of music. I mean, that track just changed everything for me. It brought people into my life who are now, you know, some of my closest friends that I've done so much with, like, directly, you know, came to me because of that track. And yeah, it just, it changed everything. It changed my style. And after that, I, I went to the USA and then I've lived there for three years. And, you know, I was always getting booked to play the slower music in the USA, you know, because there isn't the appetite for the kind of up-tempo, like, trancier stuff, you know, and there just isn't the scene for it there. So it kind of opened America to me in a way, because if I hadn't started making slower music, I probably wouldn't have the success in America that I did, you know. So yeah, it was a real game changer.
So real kind of world music vibe to me, you know, that vaguely Middle Eastern, nay flute sort of <laughs> Egyptian, I don't know. <laughs> Just in terms of the sounds you picked, you want to talk a little bit about the palette? This definitely seems like the other ones you were talking where you established the band first, right? Or is this still in the, I'm going to just reach all over for sounds. You know, it's kind of in an in-between zone at that point. As I say, I'd done about 40 or so tracks in the more clubby style. And then so I was still in that mindset, but then working at the slower tempo, it's very different. You, you can't just make slow music the same way you make fast music. You know, even though you think, you know, in your mind, you think you could just maybe transpose things down and it should just be okay. But you've got a lot more space to work with and you have to use that space. So I think, yeah, just I think the track probably just started with that bass line. That's kind of an interesting bass line. And then, yeah, I just build up the parts. So just right near the beginning. You've got your bass line, but then it's answered by this mid-range, you know, as well as you still have your high swoopy thing, you know, it's just really nicely balanced. Again, is this more aesthetic or is this scientific that you're like, where is there room in the frequencies? That was actually the first track I did in a 432 tuning as well. You know, I'd been learning about this and I was kind of curious about getting the harmonics of the track like uh, much more aligned and so it was the first time I'd done that, and it was also the first kind of like down-tempo or mid-tempo track, uh, you could call it. Explain the 432 thing a little more for the listeners here. I know there's a lot of debate about it, people are very skeptical about it, but the fact is that like using a 432 hertz as the reference tuning rather than 440, you're able to get perfectly harmonic intervals between the notes and the tempo, which is not something you can do with 440 equal temperament tuning, and a lot of people, you know, just don't care about this, and, and that's fine. You know, people just want to make a good piece of music or make a dance floor banger, and that's that. But the interesting thing about 432 is it just allows you to create this, like, mathematically perfect music. It's not woo-woo. I mean, you, you can see it in the numbers, you know. I mean, I've studied this stuff for many years. It's beautiful, you know. It's like there's a beautiful harmonic table of numbers which exists naturally in the number series, and it all centers around this frequency of 432. So that was the first time I did that. And now pretty much all my music, I mean, all of the Soul Science tracks and the Mercurial EP and all that use a 432 uh, reference tuning. I just like it because I'm, I'm a scientist and a philosopher. You know, I kind of like to make music which has that kind of like philosophical, scientific, mathematical angle on it rather than just making it whatever tuning everyone else uses. <laughs> My only interaction with that is it's the button on my tuner that I accidentally hit sometimes so that like suddenly I'm not in tune with the rest of the band anymore. Like, oh, oh I got to I got to put that back at 440. Uh. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I mean, some of the tracks are at 440. A lot of the tracks on the Kin album, for example, uh, in fact, pretty much all of them, maybe one or two of them are in 432, but a lot of them are in 440 because we were using guitars and piano and stuff. So like acoustic piano, you had to adjust. Yeah, I mean, there's a track on the Kin album called Solitude, and that all started from a piano part that was played, and so we just tuned to that. I said I'm not anti-440, but I really enjoy the kind of mathematical perfection of the 432 system. Let's see, around a minute in, we have this solo instrument. Let's talk about how you're picking that kind of thing.
So this is that nay flute. That's the closest I can come to, which it sounds like it's going to be the solo instrument, but it actually just plays one note. <laughs> and really the focus is still this rhythmic thing that's going underneath it. It doesn't take over the show or anything. I think it was a duduk. I had a sample of a duduk and I stretched it out and made it like really long with like reverb and stuff. And yeah, you're right. I didn't use it as a solo instrument, but rather just as an impactful instrument for the drop. There's one transition. You've got this nice riff and then sort of mirror it on itself as we have a swish going on. You want to talk about that transition there? Yeah, what's happening there, you know, the little percussive melody noises like... These are just like really short notes, like sine waves playing the melody. And then I run it through a pitch delay, creating delays of the notes, but then you're able to then change up the pitch of the delayed notes. The whole kind of section is the sense of like it all kind of like climbing or rising. I, I kind of think of it like, you know, when you like pour a glass of beer or something, all the bubbles rising up to the top, you know, that is I, really kind of what was inspiring me. That whole breakdown section there, there's something very aquatic about it to me. I'm kind of, it makes me imagine like bubbles and yeah, all sorts of things like that. Yeah. <laughs> You got the bubble sounds, and then there's a very strong melodic element. Actually, this is used several times in the song, but these sort of mechanical jabs. They almost sound atmospheric, but there's enough of them that it sort of constitutes the focus for a good chunk of it. I made a lot of those signs that are these kind of very resonant signs. They have this kind of like throaty, like almost screaming like, wah! Those were made with a synthesizer called Diversion, which just has like really nice filters that you're really able to like make it like scream and almost kind of talk. I would kind of like make little noises or, or little sections of noises, and then I use them to just like fill in gaps in the beat or aid with transitions and so on. After the breakdown, when the main drop hits, there's a lot more of that that comes in there. Certainly with a lot of these elements, it could very easily become much nastier. You know, once you've got these sharp elements, and I'm thinking nine-inch nails and the kind of just... I wasn't sure what the tone of this was at first. Thinking of the whole thing as wanderlust, you know, it's not a slow wandering out among the sky. Like, there's a lot packed in. There's definitely sinister elements like those jabs and these gurgles and things. To me, it doesn't speak Zen Garden in the way the first song does. But what was the tone? Do you even think in terms of that? Or does it really just what comes out of it, like it creates its own unique tone? You just reminded me, you know, how I started the track and actually how why it's called Wonderlust and, and <laughs> how that all happened. I'd actually just watched the movie Wonderlust with my wife. There's a movie called Wonderlust with Jennifer Aniston, which is about uh, someone going off and doing like ayahuasca and having this like uh, breakthrough and stuff. And I could relate to that in my own life. When I started the track, the groove that you hear, the hi-hat groove, it's like... I didn't sample it, but it was a groove that was extracted from a Stevie Wonder track. So I was actually, I got a Stevie Wonder track, Superstitious. The beginning, it has a groove, this is this hi-hat track. Now, one of the things you can do with Ableton, I didn't sample the Stevie Wonder track, but you can extract the timing 
Yeah, so you can extract actually the subtleties of the groove from any sample or whatever. I extracted the groove from the Stevie Wonder track. He obviously has a great sense of groove. And then, you know, made my own hi-hat rhythm using the timing of that Stevie Wonder track. And so I was originally, the project file was called Stevie Wonderlust. And then it later became just Wonderlust, which at that time in my life, I was dying to like leave my home country of the UK and go and live abroad and tour the world and follow my heart and so on. And uh, so I had this strong sense of Wonderlust. And that was really, that intention was put strongly into that track. And, And as I say, that track opened the world to me, you know, it just went off and I was just able to go out in the world and, you know, everywhere I go, people know that track, you know, they're just like, oh well, yeah, Wonderlust, you know, if, if they've only one Headflex track they've heard, it's usually that one. You have a little recurrent rattle, this little three note theme that made me go look up Genesis is Tonight, 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 because that has that... Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't know where that came from, actually. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of sounds that are soft, metallic kind of sounds. This is kind of like lilting, sort of like, like some kind of like squeaky thing hanging in the wind. Yeah, there's a lot of layers in that. That's, for some reason, one of the characters that I latched onto that like when that was near the beginning and then it finally comes back toward the end, like, okay, this is reprising because I'm always looking for, you know, melodies and things to latch onto. And it was, so it was very difficult with these songs, I can very much get engrossed in the particular texture of the moment. There's so much, but then when it's done, like, what do I remember? Do you think in terms of melodically, or is it really purely, obviously, you, you write lots of melodies all over the place, but are you thinking, which is the single? Which is the one with the catchy thing that people are going <laughs> to... <laughs> <laughs> That's not really the way I think about it. Yeah, like the hook. Yeah, it's because, you know, again, I'm, I'm coming from this sort of electronic, you know, I like it to be like a sense of mystery and, and you know, for you to be kind of baffled as to what just happened <laughs> when you get to the end of the track. I'm sort of making things to satisfy my own need for interesting music, you know, so it's like when a sound starts to resonate with me is when it starts to sound like something I wouldn't be able to figure out how it was made, if you know what I mean. I know how it's made because I made it, but there's a point where it just becomes interesting enough for me to commit it to the tune but if it sounds too much like something familiar that people could put their finger on and define then you know i've got to make it a bit more mysterious you know sure i feel like in my note-taking i kind of falsified a lot of your music because i'm trying to remember like what are the parts okay so i have oink roink in one part or you know little uh, (laughs) knuckles cracking or you know these things that it's just because you're trying to put it into words in a way that you just wouldn't if you were just immersed in it and experiencing it on its own terms. Unlike providing a signpost like, music is my weapon, you know, to have (laughs) something that is more purely musical. You know, that's just been the journey for me. I love the subtleties, you know, in music, and and I really want to just put that into my own music more and be less a slave to the dictates of the club because, you know, you get older, you know, you just appreciate the finer things in life. When I was young, I would just love just banging music and I could dance for 12 hours, you know. (laughs) But now it's like, no, I'm looking for just interestingness and quality and freshness and really for sounds I've never heard before because I'm a very keen ear now from doing this that I can really any sound that I hear like I just know where it's come from I know what it is I know how to make it and it's rare that I hear a sound that to me sounds interesting and that I'm just like I don't even know how that was made so that's quite rare for me now and and that's what I strive to achieve with my music 
That sounds like a great transition to introducing the last song, Origins, the first track from Kin, the 2018 album by Head Flux and Alex Delfont. You've got a lot of collaborations in your catalog here beyond the remixes, which I guess are post hoc collaborations, but real time collaborations. And you would, I think you'd characterized on your Bandcamp page that he did the analog stuff and you did the digital stuff or something. But t- tell more about that. Working with Alex really changed everything for me. I mean, he's, uh, you know, a multi-instrumentalist, a songwriter. I was not an instrumentalist and I wasn't really writing songs. You know, I was writing tracks. You know, I, I wouldn't call them songs. I'd call them tracks because with dance music, it's like we call them tracks because they're like train tracks. You know what I mean? It's just like a, a bunch of like beats, like all like lined up in a row and you're like filling up the beats like a train track, you know, and then you ride along the, you know. But with a song, there's a strong identity to it as chords uh, and cadence and, you know, and Alex really brought that to the Kin album. And so with the track Origins, that was the first one we did. The way the collaboration kind of worked was the, you know, Alex would be playing the keys, you know, he'd be playing on the keyboard and I would be designing the sound while he was playing it, you know, so like the pad that comes in at the start of Origins, you know, he was playing chords and I'm designing the pad while he's playing the chords. And then he'd be playing and I would be changing the controls. So we'd be, it'd be like, we'd both be playing the instrument at the same time. He would be playing the notes and I would be playing the effects or the properties of the notes. It really worked amazingly well. And that track came out very quickly, like in two days, pretty much it was all written and took a long time to mix. But the composition and everything was done in just two sessions. And what was so refreshing about working with Alex compared to like previous collaborations was I find like collaborations can be difficult when it's two producers. It's like too many chefs because you've only got one keyboard, one mouse, right? And one computer, you know, so and you got two people who are used to working on their own computers with their own mouse and their own keyboard. And it's just like, let me in, you know, let me do this, you know, let me in. But with Alex, because he was more of a player and a songwriter, he was very much focused on, you know, his guitar, the keyboard and just playing melodies and chords. And then that let me design the sounds and the beats it was like we each had our own domain and I think that's why the collaboration worked so well and I really learned so much from working with him I mean, he really is a musical genius and I know I get a lot of credit for that album because I'm more of a well-known name than Alex Delfont but the music there you know the songwriting is his doing I mean he wrote those melodies and chords and stuff and I was much more on the sound design and the beats and the production and the mixing you know and just one more thing finally on the inspiration for Ken, you know, we wanted to make it a very textured album and like particularly if you listen to the intro of Origins, you know, it's this kind of long intro with uh, very kind of analog, like dusty, like crackly sounds and so on. The album is actually full of samples from around the house from all kinds of things from like frying onions in a frying pan or, you know, like scratching the sofa, you know, and just getting all these like really close up, like small, quiet sounds that are around us all the time, but we don't really notice, but really just going in and finding these really subtle textures and then layering them in with the music. And Alex kind of came from more of a house music background and whereas I was more of like a breakbeats. And so you see the album is comes in about half of the tracks are like, you know, have breakbeats in them and the other half have a more like solid, like four to the floor kick, kick drum in them. It took a long time to get that finished off uh, just with life and so on getting in the way, but I'm really pleased with how it turned out and the feedback has been amazing. Well, it's so great. I mean, you got such a unique technique and talent that you've developed here. 
I want to see this used as, in as many. I want to hear this on movie soundtracks. I want Peter Gabriel to call you for his next album and say, "Be the new Larry Fast and layer stuff under or Sting or who you know whoever." What are you doing next? Let me ask you that. <laughs> what else are you working on? Actually, just on that, I would I would love for uh, the Kin material to be used in movies and so on. I feel like it does has a very strong potential for synchronization, and uh, this, this is definitely something I'm going to explore. I lived in Hawaii for two and a half years and I've just recently come back to my home of Scotland and I've been building um, a log cabin to be like my permanent studio base on my family's land here in Scotland. So um, I'm kind of really close to uh, getting that finished off now. The cabin's all built. I'm just working on the interior at the moment, getting the acoustics and the desk and all this kind of thing built. Um, so yeah, I'm hoping within a couple of weeks I'm going to be up and running uh, with the studio again and really I've got an absolutely clean slate creatively now because you know I released everything I had in September you know the Ken album like 10 tracks plus the Mercurial EP another four tracks that was like a big release of music from the last few years and now I've got a completely clean slate and I have no idea what's going to come out of me next but I just wanted to be true and authentic reflection of you know who I am and where I'm at at this point in my life all right so here's origins thanks so much Thank you.
Thanks so much to Steve. That was a really unique one in terms of preparation and note-taking and just really enjoyed it. It's really easy to get lost in his very thick and deep tracks. Very different way of making music than I typically listen to. And the person you have to thank for that is Luke McTaggart, one of the Partially Examined Life listeners who said, I really like Partially Examined Life. I like to like Nakedly Examined Music, but you need to have this guy on the show and presumably other artists like that. So thanks, Luke, for connecting me with Steve. My next guest is very different, a fellow called Peter Aaron. You may know him from his 90s band, The Chrome Cranks, that included one of the guys from Sonic Youth. It's kind of punk blues, very fun stuff. To make sure you hear that, go subscribe at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, or you can get your feed right from Patreon, which will ensure that there are no ads on your episodes. Looks like I've gotten some advertising. So go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. And with even a tiny recurring donation, you can get that ad-free feed that includes a lot of bonus material from some of the older conversations. That is the only way to ensure that this podcast keeps happening. Hope you're all doing well, holding up to the weather, finding ways to be creative. Keep on musicin'. This is Mark Linton Meyer signing off.